0: He has a really good introduction. He has a good main idea that he wanted to communicate. Jesus Christ, the unique God man who came so that he might go to Calvary's cross and bear our sin, the one who was buried but death could not hold him. He is alive from the dead. That's what we celebrate today. But more than that, he's ascended into heaven. He's in heaven ministering right now for you and for me. What a a concept. What a thought. So, a really good intro. A good main idea. He communicated that he stated uh, and restated all throughout the sermon. He had good Old Testament support to illustrate his point. He had a call to action at the end. The only thing, and this is an inside joke, the only thing that would have made this sermon better if he had thrown in a couple of quotes from Eugene Peterson, Warren Weersby, and Larry Richards. That would have bumped it up a notch. Right, Scott? Scott? <laughs> That's the only thing that could have made it better. All kidding aside, the early preaching had five points to it. The early preaching, the the preaching in the early church had five points to it. Number one, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We're going to see that in this passage today. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. A second point they made in the early preaching is that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. The third was emphasis not just upon Jesus' earthly life and death as a basis for Christianity, but upon His resurrection. He's alive and He continues to work today. He's alive and He continues to work today. The fourth emphasis was emphasis upon the second coming. There was a lot of emphasis, a lot of reminder that Jesus was returning and then the fifth emphasis was emphasis upon a decision to be made. That is, the preaching of the early church called upon people to make a decision about what they had heard. We're, we see that in this passage. We won't really get to verses 37 to 41 today, but that it is a call to action in response to what Peter has taught them, in response to his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he calls them to do something with it. To do something with it. You see, you can't just hear the truth and then ignore it and walk away. You can't just hear the truth and ignore it and walk away. When you hear the truth, when I hear the truth, we have a responsibility to live it. We have a responsibility to respond to it. William Barclay said the preaching finished with the statement that in Jesus alone was salvation in it, and that he who would not believe in him was destined for terrible things. Well, I want to proclaim to you today, using Peter's sermon and Peter's words, I want to proclaim to you today that Jesus Christ is approved of God, a unique God-man god man Jesus Christ was crucified, He was buried, He was raised from the dead, and He's ascended into heaven. He's ascended into heaven. Well, let's look. Verse 14. Uh, Remember, in verses 1 to 13, we saw that the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. Uh, We saw that certain uh, evidences accompanied the Holy Spirit. We had the sound of a violent wind. We had... uh, tongues of fire that seemed to separate and to come on each of them. And then all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as we studied from two weeks ago. So these things drew quite a crowd to the disciples. They drew quite a crowd the disciples so Peter has his crowd and he wants to take advantage of it so he begins remember that the crowd said these people must be what drunk they got to be drunk the way they're acting so Peter picks up at that point in verse 14 then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd boy what a change has come over Peter right what a change I like what uh, one of the writers said. Peter now has spiritual insight and moral courage. The power of the Holy Spirit has come upon him, and he proceeds to give the first interpretation of the life and work of Jesus Christ since his ascension. Well, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the, the crowd, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. And then he says it's only nine in the morning. Now, most people believe that what Peter was saying is even for a profligate person, nine's too early to get drunk. Well, that would be true. Of course, Any time of the day would be too early to get drunk, but that's not our topic today. (laughs) But what he was saying is something that the Jews would clearly understand. On a feast day, the Jews did not eat or drink anything until 10 a.m. On a feast day, the Jews did not eat or drink anything until 10 a.m., and some of them even waited till noon. On top of that, they usually only ever drank wine at meals. In that day, they usually only ever drank wine at meals. So Peter says, you know, that's not what's going on. They're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. They wouldn't be drinking wine with their meal till ten or at least noon. So Peter addresses them. And then he shares to try to explain to them what then is really going on. What is happening here? How should they understand this? He quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, with just a few slight alterations that he made, I'm sure, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. As I say, there were a few alterations Peter made. He changed uh, the first verse. It doesn't say in Joel, in the last days, God says. And then he added a line in verse 18, and they will prophesy. They will prophesy. But that isn't the point. The difference isn't the point here. The point is, why did he use Joel 2? Was he saying this is a fulfillment of Joel 2? Is that what Peter was trying to say on the day of Pentecost? Well, there are three views of what Peter was doing with Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost. The first view is that this was a fulfillment of Joel 2. That Joel 2 verses 28 through 32 was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The problem with that view, and the reason that I would reject that view, is because the heavenly disturbances that we see in verses 19 and 20, they were not fulfilled. How could you call this a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 if it wasn't entirely fulfilled? There were no heavenly disturbances that day. There were no wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood. So it can't be a complete fulfillment of the Joel prophecy. Secondly, the prophecy has reference to the nation of Israel and the restoration of Israel in the day of the Lord. You see that phrase in verse 20, the great and glorious day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins with the tribulation and extends through the eternal state, including the second coming of Jesus Christ, including the millennium. So the prophecy doesn't even have application or fulfillment to the church. This can't be a total fulfillment. There were no heavenly disturbances. The prophecy has reference to the restoration of Israel when God pours out his wrath upon the earth. The third reason I don't think this can be a fulfillment is because Joel refers to a future national repentance of Israel. Joel refers to a future national repentance of Israel. Well, the second view is that it's a partial fulfillment a partial fulfillment of Joel. In other words, verses 17 and 18 are fulfilled on Pentecost. Those are the ones that deal with God pouring out His Spirit on all people, sons and daughters, prophesying visions, dreams, etc. The partial fulfillment view says that part was fulfilled on Pentecost, verses 17 and 18. However, the remainder awaits awaits fulfillment at the end of time. verses 19 through 21, would happen at a future time. So that would be a partial fulfillment on the day of Pentecost and a full fulfillment in the day of the Lord. Well, the third possibility is that this Peter was just using Joel 2 as an illustration. Not the fulfillment. He isn't referring to either a partial or full fulfillment. He is just plainly using it as an illustration of the outpouring of the Spirit that will happen when Israel is restored. The prophecy of Joel is fulfilled in the future. He is saying to them, you understand this prophecy, you know that this will happen in the future. Well, you should be able to understand the Spirit being poured out upon people in a partial fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. So I tend to fall into that category that this is not an illustration it is not a complete fulfillment but rather it is a partial fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 Then Peter goes on to the heart of his message in verse 22 where he says this men of Israel listen to this Jesus of Nazareth Was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now, you're going to notice as Peter continues his sermon on the day of Pentecost, in verse 22, he talks about Jesus' life and the uniqueness of his life, and how God is confirming and has confirmed through the things that Jesus did that who Jesus is, that he is God incarnate, he is the Messiah. In verse 23, Peter talks about Jesus' death. In verses 30, uh, excuse me, 24 through 33, he talks about proofs of the resurrection, and he gives us four proofs of the resurrection. And then he talks in verses 34 and 35 about the ascension of Jesus Christ, and finally makes his conclusion in verse 36. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be God incarnate. His claims were verified by God to the Jews by the miracles, by the wonders, by the signs which Jesus did among them. The Jews themselves, Paul said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, demanded miraculous signs. Now, they got miraculous signs, but they ignored them, right? They rejected them. But these things that Jesus did, these miracles that Jesus did, casting out demons, giving people sight, giving people hearing, raising people from the dead, these were all To verify who he was, the unique God man, God the Messiah. Sometime look up on your own Luke chapter 7, verses 16 to 23. In Luke chapter 7, verses 16 to 23, it's where Jesus is telling John's disciples, John uh, sent them to ask them, to ask Jesus, are you the one? Who is to come, or do we look for another? And in Luke chapter 7, we have that answer. Luke chapter 7, verse 16. They were all filled with awe and pra- praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This followed the raising from the dead of a young man. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus made the claim Himself that His miracles, His signs, His wonders were all meant to point to who He was. God incarnate, the God-man, the Messiah promised to Israel. Well, verse 23, Paul talks about Jesus' death. We read, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now that's important. That's an important starting point. One writer said the point of this verse is clear. The crucifixion was no accident. It is not something that took God by surprise. In fact, what, Paul, what Peter is telling us here is that Jesus' death the crucifixion was divinely necessitated, was divinely ordained by God. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. That blows my mind that God would ordain that his son should suffer and die in such a way. That God would appoint, the Greek word is boule, that God would appoint his son, to suffer, and to die in such a manner. But you see, it was the only way that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. A perfect sacrifice had to be offered. And we are all sinners with sin natures. The only person without a sin nature is that of the Lord Jesus Christ who was without sin God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a trade. What a trade. Jesus had to die. It was a divine necessity. When Jesus was in the garden and he cried out to the Lord in prayer, may this cup pass from me. The cup he was talking about was not the cup of the physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering of the cross, the cup that he was talking about, let this cup pass from me, is the word cup is used throughout Scripture to speak of God's wrath. What Jesus was saying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane is this, please let your wrath upon sin that's going to fall on me, please let it pass. But it was a necessity. He had to go to Calvary. He had to experience the full wrath of God the Father upon sin, the wrath that you deserve and I deserve. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, and by the way, he's speaking to Jews here, and the wicked men are the Gentiles. That's the word anuman in in Greek, which means lawless and is applied to, to Gentiles. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jew and Gentile alike, all through the book of Acts, are culpable for Jesus' death. This foolishness about whether the Gentiles are at fault or the Jews particularly are at fault for the death of Jesus is just plain foolishness. The scripture lays it at the feet of Jew and Gentile alike, both culpable for the death of Jesus Christ. I like what McGee said. There is no use in our arguing about who is responsible for Jesus' death back at that time. I'll tell you who is responsible for his death. You are responsible. And I am responsible. It was for my sins and for your sins that he died. We're culpable. We're guilty. We crucified him. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The doctrine of the resurrection is central in the book of Acts. It's central in the apostles' witness. And what Peter says is death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Death could not hold him. The picture is of Jesus in the clutches of death, but he clutched by death. It could not hold him. He broke free. Where, O oh, oh, sin, is your victory? Where, O oh, sin? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, death could not hold him. He gives us evidences for the resurrection. I don't have time to do much more than just tell you what his evidence is. The first is the prophecy of Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. It's a psalm of David. I saw the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. But David could not be talking about himself, since he was dead and buried. In fact, one writer said, his grave could be seen south of the city of Jerusalem, from the very spot Peter was preaching. David's tomb could be seen. David wasn't resurrected. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, verse 29, that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew, knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. That's the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. Now, can you imagine this is just 50 days after Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, and Peter is standing there laying the guilt of Jesus' death at their feet, and said, he is alive. Death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Couldn't hold him. That's what we celebrate today. That's what we celebrate today. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of that fact. The second evidence, that's the first. The second is verse 32, that they were witnesses, all 120 of them. In fact, there were over 500 witnesses to Jesus Christ alive from the dead. I'd love to go into that. I can't. Number three, the third evidence was the events of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, and the fourth was the ascension. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and here's a quote from Psalm 110, 1. Therefore, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, this passage is not about, not referring to David. David was not resurrected and he didn't ascend to heaven. This passage is again speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus Christ. Well, his conclusion is in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That phrase together, Lord and Christ, is a reference to the Old Testament, Yahweh and Adonai. Lord and Christ, a strong affirmation, one writer said, of Christ's deity. You put to death. God incarnate is what he's saying. That leads the people to say in verse 37, what must we do? In verses 37 to 41, which we don't have time to get to today, what must we do? That's where we leave it today. What must we do One writer said, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He's alive today, ready to invade and change those who invite Him into their lives. Thousands now now bear uniform testimony. Their lives have been revolutionized by Jesus Christ. He has transformed them as He promised He would. The proof of the pudding, pudding is in the eating. I'm here to tell you today, He transformed me. Didn't make me perfect. You all know that. But he made me redeemed. Are you transformed? Are you transformed? If you're not, I beg you, if you've never had a time when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never understood that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done that he saved us, but it's by his grace. Today's the day. You've heard the truth. You're now responsible. You've heard the truth. You're now responsible. The writer went on to say, The invitation still stands. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The avenue to accept the offer to connect with the living Christ is open to all. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you that he is risen from the dead. In Jesus' name.